You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broken records. The albums you wouldn't shut up about. Broken records. The music our guests can't live without. Like Judy, Barbara, Liza, Bette, Betty, Audra, Bernadette. We broadcast this podcast with hopes that someday we might get Patty LaPone. Broken record, broken record, broken record, broken record, broken record. Welcome to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. I'm Ben Rimmelauer, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Daniel Nolan. <laughs> hey, y'all. Today's guest is Oscar, Grammy, and Tony-winning songwriter Stephen Schwartz, here to talk about Judy Collins's Wildflowers. Stephen is probably best known as the composer and lyricist of international mega-hit Wicked. Mega! His other major musicals include Godspell and Pippin, and he wrote lyrics for the animated movie musicals Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Enchanted. He wrote music and lyrics for the DreamWorks blockbuster The Prince of Egypt, including its Academy Award-winning song, If You Believe, legendarily Mm. recorded as a duet by Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. Yes, 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 yes. Chaka Khan! (laughs) Don't. Stephen is going to chat with us about Judy Collins' 1967 album, Wildflowers. And we are here for it. Every episode should start with me clearing my throat. Mm -hmm. Every episode should also start uh-huh. with, um, I don't know, like a dick joke or some kind of a penile reference. Penile ref- yes. No, we should call it like this, like the, the Susan Johnson hour. <laughs> Johnson. I like the Susan Johnson hour. Susan Johnson hour. <laughs> That's what I call mine in the privacy, <laughs> the privacy of <laughs> my own bedroom. I need a funny Johnson. Van Johnson. No, I don't do that. Uh, I mean, I want to say Troy Britton Johnson, but like, I feel like it should be a woman. Yeah, it needs to be a woman. I mean, my penis um, isn't this the monologue? Oh, like, it could be Margaret Johnson from Light in the Piazza. Ew. <laughs> Ew. You get the greatest belter in history, and I get a Vicky Clark soprano character? That is some bullshit. Be kind. I did not fight all these decades and the off-off Broadways to host a podcast on Broadway World where you get to have your penis be named Susan Johnson. That is fucked up. God, this is the problem with the millennial generation. They all want Susan Johnson for their dick. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah, so the Susan Johnson hour is when we just get all our dick jokes out of the way, and 
yeah. in, a, in a clean fashion so we can quickly... This actually has precedence. Edit them out of the um, Or precedence, if you like. Um, um, I when I was a child and... Um, when I, will... I was very young and the world was younger than I... Um, but for reals though, um, for real and for true, when I was a youth, um, my grandparents uh, used to have bad word day with me and my sister, which was yeah. not a day. It was just every time we got in the car <laughs> for the length of the ride. Maybe not the length of the ride. Maybe it was a minute even. But it was called bad word day. And um, we would just be allowed to say all the bad words we knew, which was only like fucking shit. Fuck and shit, like, bitch, ass. Yeah, and like, I feel like we were equal opportunity. Like, we weren't gonna like leave behind like damn. Or, yeah, like, you know, hell. like we, we, hell is Jews don't consider hell a bad word. But we would just say them like at a lot. I don't even remember like the experience. Did we Wait, use, so like, you had one car tours? ride, carte blanche. No, no, every car ride we would have a short period of bad word day where Wait, we would how just short was this period like well, seconds. I, just... I do know that it always left me satisfied. <laughs> So that's the precedent. So that game, uh, I feel like a dick joke thing would be a good thing. So I will start, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. with the dick joke that I know that is also a dick joke that you know. And that dick joke is... Uh... <laughs> stretch. Okay, and then here's where you'll just edit in. Edit in the dick joke. joke okay. I'll, I'll look up on the internet later. I'll find the best one. That will be so obvious because it will not be raining when you tell <laughs> the dick joke. Okay, so next time it's raining, we're just going to have to record a dick joke and I'll be prepared right. by the absolutely, time it happens. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, oh, what? I have a little surprise for you. Oh, I'm terrified. Give me some music. Dun, dun, da, 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 dun. Wait, you have to, this is very, you have uh, to remove. Or we get to remove this weird barrette. That's the holding your moo-moo closed. <laughs> the tie clamp. This is very like uh, uh, Madeline Connie and Frankenstein. It's like... Okay, guess what I have underneath? Underneath the moo-moo, what is it? I see striped shorts. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Taking off, he's taking off the moo He's pulling it over his head. No! fucking singlet that actually doesn't look bad on you I know that's why I bought it it looks really good well, I, well I'm having a little nip slip moment you know what you could should I wear this to the underwear party you totally should that looks really good it's on you it's not my thing turn around let me see it from the other side oh I think it's good in the back I'm not sure oh I mean there's a big hole in it but no there's <laughs> not <laughs> the listeners need to know the truth there's not a hole in it <laughs> That actually looks really good on you, though. I'm like, it almost looks, on you, it looks like one of those, like, like, Sweeney Todd swimsuits I'm trying to see. I know, I know. It's very, like, you and a nice rich baby and me. Because it's black and white. That's a, you should totally wear that too. Oh, Mr. Todd. underwear party. But the thing is, I don't want to go to the underwear party anymore. Uh, I feel like if you wore that, it would it would give you a whole new lease on life, well, and you would. I'm go. glad that you've enjoyed this sexy number. I'm now taking it off. Wait, should I get one? Should we get his yeah. and hers singlets? <laughs> um, only if I can be the hers. Of course. <laughs> oh no! Now he's removing it. <laughs> <laughs> this is assault. 
I have it on the pod that I am being. Pass me the clip, please. <laughs> Here's your tie clip, sir. This Ma'am. Tie clip, this tie clip is the only thing that separates Daniel from, from the abyss. <laughs> oh, from the Susan Johnson hour. Now, I have a better idea. Okay. It's called the Susan Johnson Hour. But the stars, this is where we do the flip. Oh, it's not raining. Oh, it's just spring. It's just literally pit petty padding. It's just like pit, when you're we're done peeing, basically, when there's still like some like, juice yeah. in the shaft. <laughs> there's still some dew on the lily. <laughs> so much nicer. Uh, okay, the Susan Johnson Hour. Um, it's not about your dick being named Susan Johnson. That's uh-huh. the name of the hour. Your yeah. dick is the parts she played. You have to choose one. Well, I only know, like, one part of... Well, I called Most Happy Fella already <laughs> in a previous session that you Wait, were what's not her, what's present her name for? in that? Like, Nelly or something? I'll look it up, and that'll be my penis's name. Okay. No, no, um, no. I'm no racist. No, I think your penis should just be named The Most Happy Fella. <laughs> it's not true! Okay, Most Happy Fella. I... Do love that show. I saw. You've seen I, it. Did well, you see it? I Have saw it at Encore's it? with Laura Benanti. I didn't see Cheyenne it. Jackson. Thrilling. I bet it was amazing. And um, who, who was my penis? Uh, it was um, Schuler Hensley. Is oh, that his name? good for him. But uh, but so who was Susan Johnson? Your penis. She was in something rotten on Broadway. She played like the wife. Her name is... I can do it. Don't say a okay. goddamn thing, okay? I just da, need to go through the cast. Da, I just don't... Da, Jeff and da, Bowen da, da, and Susan Blackwell and Heidi Blickenstaff. Heidi Blickenstaff. Ew! Yeah, it was her. She was the Susan Johnson role, and she sang Big D with uh, Jay Armstrong Johnson, and it was... <gasps> That's so my penis's name! Jay Armstrong, Armstrong Johnson! Johnson. Brilliant. Oh my god, I'm so excited. And yours is Susan Johnson. Mine is Susan Johnson. <laughs> Absolutely. Well. And yours is... Wait, who did he play? <gasps> yeah. Uh, the little uh, standing on the corner. Oh, I bet he was all. wonderful. Brilliant. Wonderful. I, I love that so much. I, I mean, it couldn't move to Broadway because it's just, I don't know. Not hey, you think enough. Jay and Cheyenne shared a dressing room? <laughs> <laughs> um, you think you think Cheyenne? You think Jay let Cheyenne in his stage door? <laughs> well, we are over the moon to have Stephen Schwartz yes. here with us. Hi guys, I'm happy to be here. This should be fun. We yes. were just saying you're our our dream our dream guest, the Truly. ideal guest for this show because nice. you're such a major force and so influential as a, a musical theater songwriter with such a distinctive sound that's been mm. such an influence on a whole you know further generations. Thanks. But for this podcast, it's so fascinating to talk to you because you are such a product of the generation that you're from and the, the music that came before you, not just in theater. But, I mean, when you we asked you the album that you want to talk about, and the first thing was Judy Collins' Wildflowers, mm-hmm. which Daniel knew it better than I did. I only Yeah, knew, that's like, a little bit before both of your time. Well, we're, we're old school. But, I mean, <laughs> I knew both sides now, and I knew yeah. some of their songs. Daniel knew the album. Yeah. Well, but then going and listening to it, it's like, Oh my God! Like, of course, this is Stephen right, Schwartz's right, right, favorite. Right. I can hear. I know. Maybe influence. I'm giving away a secret. <laughs> um, you know, and then the the other one that I cited, though I know you're only supposed to pick one album. So no, you can have as many as you want. You could have ten if you wanted. But the other Laura one Nero. that I mentioned to you mm-hmm. was the Laura Nero album. 
um, Eli and the 13th right. Confession. Yeah. Which that um, is one of my favorites for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about Laura Nero is that the songs of hers that were really influential on me are mostly on Eli and the 13th mm-hmm. Confession, but they're actually spread out mm-hmm. between her first album and that and New York Tenderberry, which is where yeah. Save the Country is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. was sort of the big one for me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. then really you ask me what album did I completely wear out by listening to over and over again and if it you know the the, the cast recording of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf I felt didn't count well, so, well that would be great hold to talk on, about that's a whole other story so I, I think people don't even know that there was an LP of mm-hmm. is it the whole play of it's Who's the Afraid entire play Uta Hagen Uda Hagen and Arthur, it's the original Broadway cast it's on Spotify I have listened to oh, there you go. I need to yeah. get that and they recorded it this is so sick and this is like a neurotic confession <laughs> but when I was in college sometimes if I was like, you know, anxious or hyped up or whatever. I thought you were going to say stoned. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the opposite. Yeah. I would listen to the very, the last side of Who's uh-huh. Afraid of Virginia Woolf to go to sleep because it was so cathartic. Oh, absolutely. And then when, when you know, the, at the very end when, you know, George would sing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf mm-hmm, and then she would mm-hmm. say like, I am George. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf. I am George. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I am George. I am. And I'd be like, Ah, oh, and then I just went off to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might be the only person so Ill. with that experience. <laughs> totally. I mean, Elaine Stritch had an orgasm. Oh, so, no, I can't. Know. I can't. I had orgasms for other but things. But not, not, not for Uda Hagen. Not for Uda Hagen well, just saying I am George I, You know, Alice Ripley has been doing this thing. I don't know if anyone has mentioned it to you, but where yeah. she does a whole scene from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf it's like the first like in her cabaret minutes. show. That's hilarious. Just all noticed. the characters. Of course she does. And plays all by the way, is equally good in each of the four oh, roles. Right. Out of that. Come for her, Martha. Stay for her, George. Yes. <laughs> Followed by her metal arc. 
Oh, there, there you absolutely. go. Perfect. The whole, yeah. everything well, you could ever need from like, theater. It's sort of like my, my dream, like, of, of a little cabaret. It's Who's mm. afraid of Virginia Woolf followed by Meadowhark? Yeah, absolutely. It's so the ideal cabaret. Totally. <laughs> it's, you know, 15 minutes of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 15 minutes of shorts, mm-hmm. and you're good to go. I love it. Now, Excellent. Um, you said this in college, you because I'm glad you said that because I was ma- imagining your parents would have been scared if they heard you listening to who's a for sure. <laughs> My parents were, were pretty scared anyway. <laughs> so, so what what were you doing that was scaring your parents? Now where sorry where did you grow up? I don't even know. I grew up on Long Island. I'm a Long mm-hmm. Island Jewish Long boy. Long Island. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I went to Mineola High School, not too far from here. Okay. Consequently, I would come into the city when I was in high school. I came into the city every Saturday purportedly to go to Juilliard, and many times I did wind up at Juilliard, but other times I played hooky and went to a matinee. Mm-hmm. Was that like mm-hmm. classes for high school students? Like Yeah, it was the preparatory division gotcha. of, of Juilliard, and you know, I was studying piano for a while, but then I switched to composition and mm-hmm. theory, and you know all the sort of yeah. usual, what, what you'd expect sure. somebody mm-hmm. at Juilliard prep to be studying. Mm-hmm. And so, so you... Even though you were an aficionado and a huge fan of pop and rock, you obviously were also a big musical theater lover. Oh yeah, I beca- I actually was not that big a fan of pop music for really until towards the end of high school for me. I'm not a fan of sort of fifties music, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And fifties, particularly fifties rock and roll, I, it's pretty boring to me to be. Um, what is that like Elvis? Or? Yeah, it's just you know the sort of like magic changes three chords. Mm-hmm, yeah. I didn't find very. I like the folk music of that time, right, sure. which is you know where Judy Collins came from, mm-hmm. um, and I played the guitar and and I liked that. But sort of what was then considered pop music, top forty radio or whatever it was called in those days, mm-hmm. I really wasn't interested in until. The right the end of high school, right when I went to college, which was the advent of the Motown sound mm-hmm. and the beginning of the singer songwriters and the um, you know the the Beatles, of course, but Beach Boys and mm-hmm. um, you know that that was the beginning of James Taylor sure. and Paul mm-hmm. Simon mm-hmm. and all those people who really influenced me. Now, mm-hmm. And they, but you worked with did Motown produce Pippin or what? They I, did. Yeah. Yes, they were the record company for Pippin. Um, was that the only cast album enough. that they were... I believe it's their only <laughs> cast album, maybe until wow. Motown. I don't know if, uh-huh. if the Motown cast album so is on Motown. Motown those covers, musical. though, like the Supremes doing I'll Miss the Man. Right, and, and, and the Jackson 5 did Corner of the Sky. Was that all part of the package? It was kind part of, of the of, deal, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that must have been pretty exciting for you. Unbelievable, to... are you kidding? Mm. It was It was crazy because... That had been the revolution for me, was right. suddenly hearing, in fact, the Supremes, hearing, you know, I got to college and my roommate had the Where Did Our Love Go album. Just it, it was so revolutionary to me and revelatory. It completely changed the kind of music that I listened to, and of course, ultimately, the kind of music that I that I wrote. Sure. So, yeah. was the stuff that you were writing before that less Stephen Schwartz sounding? To it was more theatery. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. More like yeah. a Bach and Harnett kind yes. of a feel. Exactly. Of course, exactly right. Because that's. 
that's basically what I was listening to. Yeah. You know, some some what we would now call world music mm-hmm. and folk music and of course classical when music. When you talk about the folk music from the fifties, like before Judy Collins, what was who were folk the artists? Weavers, we might know. you know, mm-hmm. group folk groups, uh, particularly the Weavers, I was very um fond of and went to see them in, in concert several times. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of, you know, guitar based groups that were doing, you know, early Dylan and mm-hmm. Pete Seeger, of course, was mm-hmm. the leaders sure. and that kind of sound. Very, very guitar based and Woody, you know, doing Woody Guthrie songs, mm. that kind of, mm. um, th- that kind yeah. of music. Yeah. So when did you discover Judy Collins? Did your parents have that album or did you buy it? No, I bought it. You bought I it. bought it. I discovered Judy Collins because I was playing guitar and folk music and she started out at the same time as Joan Baez and those mm-hmm. sorts of folk singers she started out um, I think her first album was called like Made of Constant Sorrow and it was mm-hmm. you know basically guitar based folk songs and mm-hmm. then so I, I really loved her voice and I liked the songs that she chose and so I would when she'd get a new album I would I would get it immediately and the album before the Wildflowers album um, which I'm not remembering the, the album name, but it had on it a song called Suzanne. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you think you'll maybe trust her For she's touched your perfect body with her mind Leonard Leonard Cohen, Cohen, right. yeah. which I had never Beautiful. heard. Love Not only that. never heard that song, never heard of Leonard Cohen. Oh, wow. And I remember listening to the song and just bursting into tears yeah. and listening to it over and over again. So I was very primed when yeah. Wildflowers came out, and I went to get it, and it was um, orchestrated and arranged by a man named Joshua Rifkin, of whom I had never mm-hmm. heard. But he created this whole sort of harpsichordy sound, yeah. and and the first time I heard both sides now, which is still my favorite song of all mm, time. Whenever anybody best. asks me what is your single favorite song ever written, it's both sides now. Goes and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feathered canyons everywhere. But now they are... Both lyrically and musically, but particularly in the Joshua Rifkin arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, Well, that that vamp feels so... Well, well, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm giving away (laughs) my (laughs) secrets. Yeah, of course, you can hear how influential that was on Morning Glow. By the Um, way, Morning Glow is the song that... It, I could be in the middle of a circus on, like, helium, but if I put that song on for two seconds, I just cry.
thank you. Totally. I mean, I, it just it just hits that that chord. Absolutely. You know? and both sides now has in it. I know this is a little technical, but it has an interval in it that no one, to my knowledge, had ever done before in in a pop song, which is a jump of a seventh. So it's like when she's well, when the the song goes, uh, for instance. Um, and feather canyons that 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 interval no one had ever written before but now everybody does it it's in the sun will come out tomorrow the three bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun yeah and it's you i mean you can find it in so many songs including mine and Joni mitchell she didn't invent it, but right. she, she, no one else had done it. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I know that's stupid to talk about an interval, no, but it complete, it, my little head exploded. I'm glad you brought up Charles Strauss, um, because I actually, and one of my favorite scores of yours is also Rags. Thank you. And I always thought, I'm glad to have the chance to, I don't think I even thought of asking you this until now, but I always thought it was odd that so far into your established career as a lyricist and composer, both, that you went and did that project as as only the lyricist, and I'm uh, and I love that that piece so much. Well, I, I love this. No, I guess I saw a concert of it once. Yeah, but what what we was finally that? have fixed it. By the way, I mean that sounds like a funny thing to say, mm-hmm. but but you know it's a show that never worked, and for me it was always like the little orphan child yeah. of the <laughs> of the show that got away, the show that I thought well, there's an idea there, but we never mm-hmm. solved it. And my, the other shows of mine that originally didn't work, like Children of Eden or Baker's Wife were working, all then, you know, were, we were able to fix, and they mm-hmm. went on to happy endings, and mm-hmm. that never happened for Rags, except it's just happened. Well, that's very mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah, it is I ex- want to see that. It dying. is exciting, yeah. Um, are there any productions coming up that we can we can follow um, to? Th- there was just one in, um, actually in Manchester, England, that I think may be coming down to oh. London. It was very successful there, and I know the producer wants to bring it down there. And then was the one you know, at Goodspeed two years ago, it, was that? Goodspeed was the first iteration of this new I version. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, I mean, we've done some improvements to it since then, but yes, that was the, when we sort of really went back to the drawing board and Tommy Thompson, David Thompson came sure. in with the blessing of uh, Lisa Stein, Joe Stein's widow, mm-hmm. and really went back to square one and looked at a lot of earlier versions that Joe did and um, you know, just recreated uh, recreated the story. And mm. consequently, a lot of the uh, the lyrics are are new, though we were able to retain a lot of the music, though much of it is repurposed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about like the whole Penny a Tune uh, sequence? Is that is that some of it is there? Because I'm it. such a nerd for that segment. I feel like well, all Penny, the, the Klezmer musicians yeah. actually go through the whole show now. Oh, that's um, awesome! And that's and thought. consequently, Penny a Tune that little segment is there, and then there are other. Um, Others of the the tunes that were in that whole sequence are repurposed for. Oh, other I think I'm gonna love songs. the new yeah. the new rags. And I realized as I was asking about that that Mass was another example. Although I, I guess I always understood you working with Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, as being I mean, such a, you how know. can you resist? Yeah. But so did that is that what led you to then work on Rags with Charles Strauss, or how did that come about? No, it was really. Uh, um, a completely different different issue. Actually, I've been approached originally about writing, uh, about directing Rags, and there was another lyricist involved. And then, for various reasons, it wasn't working out with that lyricist. And um, they asked me if I would, you know, now take over as the lyricist. Mm-hmm. And um, 
because it was going uh, rather <laughs> um, tortuous in both senses of the word um, <laughs> development process, it began to seem to me that I shouldn't be both the writer and the director. Mm-hmm. That's not really... I kind of learned from working mm-hmm. that at least for me, you shouldn't be the writer and the director because mm-hmm. there there's are two different jobs and in some ways they're... Um, Slightly adversarial <laughs> yes, right, to one another, right. and should be. Yeah, by the way, right, yeah, yeah. They sh- there there should be even even when I work with my son Scott as a director, um, we never fight. But you know, there are like uh, um, there's push and pull, right, yeah. which I think is important to yeah, getting totally a show sure. right. Um, anyway, once I w- became one of the writers of Rags, I thought I shouldn't also be directing this, and so didn't anymore. But so I sort of. Um, that's this is way too long an explanation, but I became one of the writers of Rags kind of through the back door. No, that's a great answer. I mean, I think it's fascinating that you are someone who, um, even after having success as the thing that you're most known for, you still have done all kinds of different sides of it, including directing, including the things where you where you wrote the lyrics for somebody else's music, um, and you know, and you and you talk about um, uh, because weren't you sort of like the uh, the creator of working was that was kind of yeah. your baby. Yeah, wasn't that was it? exactly. Yeah, I mean, I came across the book. I was very interested in the idea of a documentary musical, mm-hmm. um, and then I was very um, moved by some of the interviews that I'd read, and so I I became excited by the idea of theatricalizing it in some way, and. Um, as it was developing, originally my intention was to write the score, but then there were all these individual characters, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because they were there were all these inter- individual interviews, and I felt in many cases, if I were writing something for that character, I was essentially going to be writing pastiche. I was basically mm-hmm. going to be imitating someone else's style um, in order to really try to get the veracity of that particular character. And so I thought, well, this is silly. Why don't I just call people who actually write like that mm. and ask them to participate? And so it became the sort of group um, composer um, compendium or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, which was really fun. It's so cool because it really feels to me like a score, good a piece, that even was though it goal. is by these different writers. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's just so, um, for you to have had that humility to have that idea... But then also to to know the right collaborators. I mean, I, I assume Mickey Grant and Craig Carnelia were kind of you know people in your community and in your radar. That's at that yeah, time. exactly right. Yeah. But I mean, and I and I guess James Taylor makes sense also. You know, well, but, you know, I grew up listening to. Uh, he was one of the people that changed how I heard music. Mm-hmm. I went to other pop writers. I, I in fact met with Joni Mitchell. I wow. talked to Paul Simon. Um, you know, I went to my heroes um, to see if they would be interested. And for various reasons, like Paul was doing One Trick Pony and he wasn't available. And Johnny Mitchell played around with the idea for a while, but then she was doing a new album, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. James was the only one who really jumped on board. The disappointment is that after the show was done and it was sort of too late to bring in <laughs> new... Uh, I heard from Billy Joel, ah! who volunteered oh. to write something... And I just, I, you know, I was oh like, my I God. can't. I'm you weren't so like, sorry. you know, Patty Lapone still needs a song. I should you, have. Get in here, Billy. I should have done it. You know, <laughs> I don't know. We just had so many songs at that point. But that that was the one that got away because he would have done it. So I have to ask, how was that meeting Joni Mitchell? Because I'm such a huge. Oh my fan God! Of Joni. Can you imagine? 
Yes, I'm. Well, you know, I'm very, very seldom starstruck, uh-huh. but that was that was one. Yeah, we met at I think like the Bel Air Hotel or something. Oh, yes. But then, of course, but then I actually went back to her. Um, I guess it was her studio or uh-huh, her house. Uh-huh. And we we spent a whole afternoon together, and um, you know, it was incredibly exciting for me. Uh-huh. But ultimately, she didn't do the. Um, you know, she didn't do the show, but I did get a chance to gush and tell her that she changed my life, and I'm sure just, you know, horrified and mortified her with my gushing. Wow, I'm sure she loved it. (laughs) Okay, going back to that moment when you discovered all these people and Judy Collins and everything, you talk about it, like, changing the the way that you wrote. I mean, you know, I think we assume or imagine that just means kind of aesthetically or, you know, changing the kind of sound that you created. Is there something more... I don't know. How would you describe the way? It yes, I would it? certainly say that. Certainly, the sound that um, the kind of music I wrote, which mm-hmm. was much more up till then, more tr- what you would call traditional musical theater. Mm-hmm. This was the time when there really wasn't pop music in mm-hmm. the theater. I mean, you talk about um, Charles Strauss, and actually, another album that I wore out was Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which I heard when I was like 12 or 13. Sure. Mm-hmm. And nothing sounded like that. No yeah. other show sounded so pop to me. Mm-hmm. So that was very um, exciting and, and inspiring. But basically, I just thought show music was Bach and Harnick yeah. and mm-hmm. Stephen Sondheim and Rodgers and Hammerstein and, you know, and Lerner and Lowe and all. That's mm-hmm. what I thought mm-hmm. show music was, and that's what I was somewhat writing, mm-hmm. um, though not as well. And then, you know, this new sound became the sound that I was actually listening to mm-hmm. and that I fell in love with. Um, and... In those, when I first started, there was a lot of resistance in certain parts of the critical community and certain parts of the theater community to the use of pop music in shows. Mm-hmm. It was okay to do something like Hair um, or even Godspell, which were inherently plotless. I mean, Godspell is not really plotless, but they seemed more like reviews. Mm-hmm. But when it came to Pippin, where one was actually telling a story with characters and they were singing in a pop idiom, that was, believe it or not, quite controversial at Mm -hmm, the time. mm -hmm. And many people said, well, you can't illuminate character with that kind of music. It's so absurd. because Well, now all show music is essentially pop music. But I mean, the music in the generation before was the music they played on the radio. So it's such an arbitrary... Where they drew well, the line. Many people have arbitrary, you know, <laughs> yeah. people have a lot of arbitrary things yeah. that they justify. But but the point being that that really was not theater music. And you, myself and Andrew Lloyd Webber over in England, and Andrew. slightly mm-hmm. afterwards, um, Alan Mankin, mm-hmm. you know, we were three of the first who, who wrote shows with characters telling stories and using 
what was considered rock, pop, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Mm-hmm. So, and but you had the strength of your conviction that you thought, no, I know what I'm doing. This is good. I, I don't need them to get behind it. Was that the sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that strongly. Yeah, you know, um, but I was just writing the way I wrote. I was trying to write what I would want to hear mm-hmm. and write shows that I would want to see. Um, which sounds, I suppose, arrogant. People always say, like, the audience this. And I always just say, like, I, I never worry about the audience. Right. Yeah, I just yeah. write what I would want to see and what I would want to hear and hope that there are enough other people yeah. who who will respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to get off to a very successful start early on so that even though there was a lot of criticism and there remains a lot of criticism to this day... It didn't make me feel, oh, unless I play the game their way, I'm not going to succeed. Mm -hmm. I was succeeding, even though I wasn't playing the the game the way some people felt I should be. Mm -hmm. I mean, so what was that like to have these critics and people whose respect you wanted being harsh, and yet Godspell is this hugely um, landmark show, and there's productions happening everywhere, and it's... You know, and and Motown is is getting in bed with you for your next project. I mean, was was that just in line with the kind of cultural chasm that was going on at the time? No, I mean, it was uh, it was it. I mean, to be honest, it was it was very hurtful. It was very upsetting mm-hmm. to me. Not Godspell didn't really encounter that because it was acceptable to do that kind of score mm-hmm. for the kind of show that Godspell because mm-hmm. it was like a hippie show. So yeah, yeah, that. and it and it was kind. There was a story, but there weren't really characters mm-hmm. beyond the the songs defined the characters, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And um, it was it was really Pippin where the you know, and, and subsequent stuff where where I started to feel a lot of um, antipathy and, and attacks. And, I mean, I certainly had fans and supporters, and I was doing well. But, you know, it's it's, it's hurtful to, to read how untalented mm-hmm. you are. And even if, like, Barry Gordy and Bob Fosse are telling you the opposite, that doesn't, like... No, I mean, it didn't discourage me from, yeah. um, from writing. Well, actually, at a certain point, it discouraged me for a little while. But... Um, but since you asked what it was like, it didn't. It didn't roll off my back, and I yeah. didn't say, "Well, you know, fuck them," and I'm. I don't care, and mm-hmm. I'm right, and they're wrong. It was. I will admit to you, it was. It was very hurtful, and you know, I'm. I've never been a critic's darling, and I'm still not. It's not like the score to Wicked got such great reviews. I mean, it's so um, funny to remember that now, totally. because it's just you know, it's. Phantom of the Opera. I mean, it's like it's Broadway history. Right. But to think that there was a time when it was like, what is it going to happen to it? I mean, it's so mm-hmm. bizarre now to look back at that. that. I have gotten you. I ju- now I just I assume that I'm always going to get bad reviews. <laughs> I just assume, and it's like yes, of course my score is going to get bad reviews, um, and sometimes it it matters in terms of the success of the show, and and sometimes it doesn't, mm-hmm. and. I feel whiny now talking about this. No, I, no, I think it's no. look. It's a very valid thing. I mean, what is the role of, of criticism, and where, you know, where if the critics are so out of touch and close-minded culturally to what is actually going on, you know, uh, you know, it's the people that say Hamilton's too loud, or what, you know, what. Well, the, Hamilton was very um, completely embraced. Yeah, no, no, totally. But but if it had not been, that would have been uh, 
of, of, of equally valid. You know, I mean, I think that that shows a little bit um, uh, of them catching up, you know, um, at least from what, you know, what was newer. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing now is that they don't matter as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The nice mm-hmm. thing is that they, basically they can do good, but they can't really do harm. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if mm-hmm. there's a show that really has an audience and appeal and it speaks, it can speak directly to its audience because of social media and the way word gets out there. On the other hand, they can anoint a show yeah. and, and create interest in that show, mm-hmm. so, which, is, which is in a way, I feel, the, the best possible role for, for critics to be able yeah. to say, you may not have heard of this, but, but look at it because I think it really has mm-hmm, value. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Um, and the shows that they really don't like, as I say, if, if there's an audience for it, it's, they can tend to find their audience more easily now. So what was that? Because I remember you, know, you said that about Wicked. What do you think about that show in particular? You know, It has this whole life now and it's become such a huge mega hit. What, do you, what was that like seeing the audience reaction in in relation to the critics' reaction and seeing that journey of it becoming such a huge hit and having such a life and having such a fan base? Well, we knew really early on because of the way audiences were responding and, mm-hmm. to be honest, even out of town in San Francisco because of what happened at the box office, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we knew we were onto something. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, there was a little bit of concern when we opened and got panned by the New York Times mm-hmm, and a couple mm-hmm. of the other, you know, Cognoscenti reviews. Um, but we were already doing pretty well, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't think anybody thought, oh, my God, you know, we're, we're dead now mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because business was already strong, and then we were, you know, within three weeks we were you couldn't get a ticket. Right, so right. It, it, we, we didn't, we didn't have that kind of six months of holding on by mm-hmm, our fingernails mm-hmm. and then gradually catching on, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so it was okay. I mean, listen, I would love to have opened and gotten the reviews that Hamilton got from right. the store. Of course, you know, once in my life, I'd like that to happen, but I, but I'm also resigned to the fact that it's really probably not going to. Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I I, th- I think the younger gen- bless you, <laughs> the younger generation of um, critics like that was a me sneezing by the way. That was someone <laughs> an outsider, an outsider. <laughs> it's Ben Brantley. Um, but you know the um, the Daily Beast and Vulture and you know all these websites that are sort of you know becoming more of the tastemakers of mm-hmm. of the younger generation. You know, these are people. I mean, it almost was unfair to compare Wicked to Phantom because. You know, we think of Phantom as Broadway fans as sort of somebody else's show. It's for tourists. It's for non-theater people. Or Not when it first opened. It was, you know, it was really cutting edge, particularly how's staging. Yeah. No one had ever seen staging like But still, all these years in, Wicked still belongs to the Broadway people. I mean, it's out, you know... You, if you go to the piano bars on any given night, they're not singing anything from Phantom. They're singing well, Defying yes, Gravity. Yes, they are, but good. they're also singing Defying Gravity. I mean, I, I think it is a, <laughs> it's a little more like home home team love for Wicked. You know, that... that um, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just my personal <laughs> preference. <laughs> but, um, but, I'm, but, but, but even going back to the beginning of that with Pippin, like, 
did you at all consider maybe I should try to write something more Bach and Harnicky and not not put my my Judy Collins taste not into the not really next thing? because I was getting away with it. I mean, I did mm-hmm. do Baker's Wife, which is a different kind of score. I mean, it's 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 a a stealth pop score. Yeah, you know. Oh, but like it's that. very French inflected, and mm-hmm. it seems on the uh, surface to be more traditional musical theater. Though, if you really listen to it with yeah. certain ears, you mm-hmm. recognize that it's a pop score because that's how I write. Um, but that was because it was set in the 1930s in a small French village, mm-hmm. and it didn't seem appropriate for there to be electric guitars. So, mm-hmm. what does that even mean when you say, if you really listen to it, it's a pop score? Like, you know, what 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 is an example from the Baker's Wife score that is somehow, you know, because I think when I think of, like, pop in terms of, like, a categorical way like that, you know, does that mean that there's a more repetitive chorus or something? You know, what, what because, the, I mean, those songs don't seem to me to be lacking in anything, the Baker's Wife songs, that a theater song ought to have. So what makes it a... Well, like I hope none stealth. of the, you know, none of my work, no, no, whether, for sure. whether it's more overtly pop music or not, but if you really listen to Meadowlark, I mean, it, it's basically pop. I, I, it's hard to define. Make a feast of the plums and peaches Just as far as your vision reaches Fly with me But but I don't think that, you know, Richard Rogers or Jerry Bach would have written music that sounded like metal art. So we're talking, we're talking still just like about a style, a style. Yeah, it's a style. Sound I feel thing. it's still within my stylistic sure. voice. I don't think it, it was so outside that people said, wait a minute, I, I didn't, this doesn't sound like him. Mm. But it's definitely not as overtly a pop score as Pippin or, or, mm-hmm. um, or even Wicked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, some, and with The Baker's Wife, was that your first thing that was not a success? Yes, the first the first show that wasn't a commercial. Mm-hmm. Once I was once I was working professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that and that's such. I mean, I my understanding is that from the beginning, but certainly now, it's such a favorite score of so many theater people. And then you know, I mean, I don't know anyone that knows those songs and doesn't treasure them. Thank you. Well, I've was, had. Did a, you feel that way about it? Like, oh, this is a great score. I felt really good about the score. Yeah. Um, Though it went through, there were so many songs in and out and in and out. Yeah, I mean, we've heard Patti LuPone tell that story, and I'm always like, what are the other songs? I well, want the other songs. You don't, uh-huh. trust me. <laughs> one of the, but one of the things that, you know, people say, like, well, that, that little album that got released, which was such a fluke in those days to have right, yeah. an album of a show that had closed out mm-hmm. of town. Um, but what people are surprised when I tell them is that there was not one single performance of the show out of town, where every single one of the songs that's on that album was in the show. Mm. 
Oh, interesting. What I did was I put together what I thought should be the score of the show. So the album is actually the beginning of the revision process. That is correct. The album was really the beginning. <laughs> You're of the like now that David Merrick is out of the building, here's the score. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. And, I mean, it took quite a while to to get that show right, and it had to go through many false starts. And mm-hmm. um, finally, I mean, I always credit Trevor Nunn. Um, when he did the production in England, even though we didn't entirely solve it and it was half an hour too long. That's like uh, 10 years later or something, right? Oh, it's more like than 90s 10 years even? later. It was uh, late 80s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I guess like 15, 14, 15 years later. But um, maybe not quite that many. Anyway, the point being that that's when I thought it really started to mm-hmm. get solved, that Trevor kind of showed us the way to do it and then subsequently to the to the... London production, we made some further changes and mm-hmm. finally got the show right. And I remember after the show was done in, in Paper Mill, directed by Gordon Greenberg, Wonderful really beautifully production. directed yeah, by Gordon. Really and, um, and really we felt like, okay, we have the show now. Yeah. And it got wonderful reviews, finally. Ha ha ha! See, they only remember the bad ones. Right, right. <laughs> no, the, we did get good reviews for that, and including, I think, actually The Times. But anyway... Um, then my, my son Scott said to me, ever since I've known you your entire life, you've been working on fixing the baker's wife, and now what are you going to do <laughs> right, with the rest right. of your life? <laughs> so, yeah, but I've, you know, I've had the good fortune of having shows that did not work commercially originally mm-hmm. that then, through adjustments and changes, etc., we were able to fix and, and mm-hmm. make into commercial successes that, that then went on to happy lives. And I feel extremely lucky in that regard because um, so often that's not the case and you kill you work just as hard, in fact, probably harder on an unsuccessful show yeah. mm-hmm. than a successful one. And then usually those just fall by the wayside and have never are never heard from again. Mm-hmm. And I actually haven't had that experience. So what was that? You must, I mean, it's such a unique journey that you've had and your perspective is so singular because to have had this incredible success, whatever uh, critical disappointment you experienced, but with Godspell and Pippin and, and it was the magic show before The Baker's Wife also? Yes. So, you know, to go just hit, 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 hit and then have this show that then doesn't even come in. But, I mean, you're still a very young man, and you've had this incredible um, success bef- leading up to that. Where, how, how did you go? I guess that's when you had the inspiration to do working. Yeah, I mean, I thought working, was, <laughs> working was supposed to be not really revenge, but working was <laughs> going to be like, okay, this is my show, you know, yeah. I'm going to be in charge yeah. of this. And then, you know, that didn't work initially. So mm-hmm. that was very, um, really upsetting and exhausting. I was very burned out and I didn't work after that for um, a couple of years. You know, mm-hmm. I basically hid out and, and um, wasn't sure I was going to work again. But, you know, I, I'm, I, I, no matter how hard I try to stay depressed, I just can't do it. Ultimately, I, I get it's over it. It's a good it. problem. It is a good problem. <laughs> totally. but you know how like you're like, no, no, I want to stay angry and yeah, bitter. Right. And why can't I just be bitter a little bit longer? <laughs> but um, but unfortunately, it's just not in my personality. And so when we, what you talk about, like Joni Mitchell and stuff, what did you did you go out to L.A. then? What, I mean, I guess your son Scott was already born. Cause I know yeah, yeah, yeah. Both, my, age, both my kids were born, and I spent a lot of time actually... Um, being a dad, mm-hmm. which was really fun. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I've often said that the three happiest years of my life were when I was depressed. Because yeah. <laughs> I just stayed line. home with my, with my kids. <laughs> yeah, but then I, I did go out to L.A. And then, you know, ultimately this movie career kind oh, of yeah. happened But that, that's like in the like 90s That's much already. later. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, what, like Rags, Rags was in between that. Yeah. But mm-hmm. Rags was 85. Yeah, yeah mid So, I mean, that's still... Then I went to London and we did... Um, Baker's Wife with Trevor mm-hmm. and Children of That's Where Children of Eden began. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. But like what were you doing from like um after working until rags? Um well first of all I took three years where I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Then what happened was there was a, a television show of working and, and kind oh, of working right. sort I've of got resuscitated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I started to feel, oh maybe I'm not such um an idiot and you know a talentless hack after all and is that the place you would go to like it's about my talent like yeah sure I mean yes absolutely maybe everybody does that yeah yeah a lot of times Mm. I think and how whenever you had those feelings did you use you know for me it's like whenever I'm depressed or 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 I feel like you know burnt out like music for me like I do go back to that Johnny Blue album Mm. you know I do go back to Laura Nero and like I use that as like self-therapy you know is that something that you used like yeah, abso- these albums? of course absolutely and uh, and actually for me playing the piano a lot mm-hmm, i mean yeah. i know in those in those years off um i took out all my old classical piano pieces and would practice every day and i, I got to be so much better you know oh, than yeah. i ever was you know i was playing like all the beethoven sonatas Amazing. and rachmaninoff concertos oh, wow. and things like that yeah no i can't do that anymore <laughs> oh, but, but i was really good for a while back oh, that's then fascinating. i mean the thing it's funny like about um my friend and i were talking about this the other day in terms of like art that you want to comfort you in dark times and we were talking about it in the trump era but i mean you know it can be different times in our lives but that sometimes it's not the escapist, happy, happy-go-lucky things that are comforting, because that kind of, I don't know if those... Well, those, it feels false. Right, yeah. exactly. So is it well, that they're in a minor key or slightly dissonant? Well, or some, that music, it gets you where you already are, yeah. so you can have that kind of relief. Well, yeah, it's the sense that you're not alone. Yeah. That other people have sh- are sharing or have shared the um, whatever angst for one of them. Well, in something like Joni, you know, it's so angsty and confessional. It's like that. That's why I think she was such a uh, a big deal whenever she came out with Blue, because that's you know people were like, oh, she's saying what I feel in a very exactly. beautiful poetic way. Yeah, yeah. And I certainly, I mean, for me, that album was wicked. You know, in high school, I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm not that girl. Well, I think that's. I mean, obviously, that's the secret. Yeah. I believe of Wicked is yeah. that. We, as David Stone, one of our producers, says, we all have that green girl inside us. Totally, totally. I mean, I think that's what originally, when I very first heard about the book Wicked from Holly Near, the folk singer who had sung with Ronnie Gilbert, Mm -hmm. who was the voice of the Weavers that I fell in love with. So, I mean, there's there's such a connection. What was her connection to Wicked? She just told me about About the the book. Oh, like heard about it. She was like, yeah, oh, the Steve, novel. you should read yeah. this. Yeah. She, well, not even that. She said, oh, I'm reading this really interesting book. And it's called Wicked, and it's kind of the Oz story from the Wicked Witch's point of view. 
And I just knew right then, like mm. it's happening again. Every hair on my <gasps> you arms been a big stood Wizard up. Wizard of Oz person before that? Oh, or? sure. Yeah. Like all of us. Well, yeah. you know, in my generation, the Wizard of Oz was on television every single year. Yeah, sure. Mm. We all knew the whole movie by heart. Yeah. I knew the record album by heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the very first thing I had ever seen on color television. Mm-hmm. The very first time it was. Um, it, it, it was shown I had to go over to my friend's house because we did not have a color TV and I got to see The Wizard of Oz in color on his television set oh. yeah it was it was so central to my childhood and then the idea of taking this character and making looking at it, everything from her point of view which is so what interests me you know yeah. I've always done the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing mm-hmm. um, and it's, I mean it's so amazing because the um, it sure we all have the green girl inside of us but by making her the focus I it almost is like a force for good because all these some of those girls in the audience are probably going to be the bitchy popular girls in their high school and I think a little bit because they listen to Wicked, they might be, you know, they're thinking that what they think is cool is a little more, um, you know, uh, subversive now. Sure. It's like a hidden revolution message. Even those girls, it's interesting because on the way into town today, uh, you know, I listened to Sirius Radio and I was listening to Christine Petty and she was talking about Mean Girls. Uh And uh she said that one of the things she likes about the show Mean Girls is that the girls that you think at the very first five minutes you're supposed to hate, Mm. you kind of get to understand them too. And they have their own issues and their own um, things that are driving them and making them be the way they are. Um, And I think that's what sort of the Glindas in the audience Mm -hmm. feel too because inside they're just as insecure and just as desperate to fit in. Mm -hmm. And in some ways their job is harder because they have it. And so the fear of losing it is in some ways stronger than the the need to have it when you when you never have and never do. Right, in some right. ways, it's easier to reconcile that than totally. reconcile actually being able to look at yourself in the mirror and lose this thing that you have. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's been speaking to Glinda's as well. Yeah. Totally. Well, that's totally. the relationship. Their friendship is then so moving. Now, and wasn't there some crazy like synchronistic thing where both you and Winnie Holtzman were like wanting to meet the other one to write the show like you separately had the idea and then found Well each Winnie other. told me that she had seen the book in a mm-hmm, bookstore mm-hmm. um and was very intrigued by it I, she bought it she called her agent her agent said oh they're already making it into a movie and Linda Wolverton is writing it and Linda, Winnie said she was so crushed she put it on her shelf and never read it wow. and then you know a couple of years later I sort of called her and said, so I think I'm going to get the rights to this. Do you want to do this? I mean, and, and so that was a long time coming, that return uh, to Broadway for you. For me, the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, had, I thought I was never going to do another show. I had not had happy experiences on Broadway in the last several things that I did. And, you know, I, I felt, um, you know, as I said, I received all this criticism. And I felt like, boy, they, they really don't want what I do. And then I, I had this very unexpected huge success in Hollywood mm-hmm. and I just thought well I'm I'm like what Howard Ashman did yeah, I felt like yeah, well yeah. I'm like Howard Ashman he felt he got booted out of Broadway yeah. he went out to 
California. He had a whole new career. He had a great time there. Why would he ever go back? And yeah. I thought, well, I, you know, there's absolutely no reason for me ever to go back until Holly Near told me about this book. And yeah. how, how was that Hollywood experience for you? I mean, now we take it for granted that there's all these wonderful animated musicals. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know... Just... I loved it. I had the best time. I loved doing movies. And um, at that time in, in animation... You know, when I, when I first came to Disney, first of all, I love Alan, and, and mm-hmm. we were friends before we started working together, and he's such a great collaborator and such a good friend, so mm-hmm. that yeah. was very happy. And, you know, I got to Disney, and it was Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider mm-hmm. were, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who could be difficult, but also was so inspiring and so smart, and it just was, uh, it was really a happy, um, creative time. Um, and what about then, like, doing Prince of Egypt? Like- yeah, well, that was Jeffrey. You know, mm-hmm. Jeffrey went to DreamWorks, and um, I really uh, admired Jeffrey, and and I was inspired working with him and for him, and he called me and said, we're forming this new movie company, and it's me and Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. Come oh meet with us. You must have already had some relationship with David Geffen at that point. I knew David... From when he was an agent. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had a long conversation with David when he was representing Laura Nero and Joni Mitchell about the two of them. Oh, my God. And, um, you know, sort of David's preference, which I won't tell you what. Oh, my God, I'm dying. You know, and I talked about how both of them were so influential on me. But I really had not seen him at all since then until I walked into the room and, and Jeffrey and David and... And what about Steven Spielberg? Had they, did you guys cross paths? No, not until then. Because, I mean, mm. I, I would like to see, like, a Steven Schwartz E.T. musical, you know? That, that oh, seems absolutely. like a good fit. Well, Steven Spielberg, well, obviously he's doing West Side Story Steven. now. But yeah. he loves musicals. And I have to say that early on in Prince of Egypt, one day we were in an officer's. There was some place we were where there was a piano, and Steven Spielberg walked over to the piano and said, like, oh, I really like this, you know, Deliver Us or whatever it was. And he played it wow. on the piano. I had no idea he could play the piano, oh, let alone play by ear. And yeah. Whose idea was it to have uh, Whitney and Mariah uh, record? When that must Mariah. have been Jeffrey, you know. I mean, we never had anything to do with who the pop uh-huh, singers uh-huh. were going to be. because But they were usually, like, much less exciting people on those movies, you know, when they would have the pop version of, you know, was it Peebo Bryson? I mean, it was not yeah, You know, they, they got who they could get, yeah, you know, sure. and in this case, I guess Jeffrey could, could get the two of them and, I mean, because did, of the subject matter. Had you been a fan of, of Whitney's? I of mean, course. Who wasn't? Yeah. You know, did you get to course. meet Whitney? I did. Oh, how was that? You know, this is really... I, I like telling the story because she had such a reputation and maybe still has of being, like, difficult and flaky and yeah. all this stuff. I only... I had one day with her in the studio. She was consummately professional. Mm-hmm. Mariah had already recorded her vocal in Spain or something. Uh-huh. something <laughs> literally. And she sent back the vocals uh-huh. and Whitney sang to those vocals. And somehow matched all those riffs and things and just so expertly, so professionally, Mm. such a pleasure to work with. Maybe she was difficult every other day of her life. I have no idea. But on that day, she was fantastic and delightful. Wonderful. So can you spill any tea on the Wicked movie? I wish I could. (laughs) I wish I could tell you... um, 
I, all I can tell you is that work is ongoing. We're on it. Uh, We're working on the screenplay. Oh, my God. Um, progress is being made. I'm so excited. Um, I think everyone knows that Stephen Daldry is directing. Oh, yes. Um, which we're thrilled about. Yeah, fabulous. And right now, of course, he's um, working on The Inheritance, so I'm yes, transferring yes. that. Did you uh, see that? I didn't. I hear it's fantastic. Yeah, we yeah, saw, we saw it in, in London. Yeah, don't, don't tell me anything about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to go knowing nothing about I don't know what it's about. I mean, it's I know a, a little too It's tedious. about six hours long. <laughs> yeah, that's fine with me. I'm one of those people. I love oh, when, totally. when something is good and it's eight hours long. Yeah, you have yeah. to take a yes, dinner break. The longer that's the my better. favorite. It's like the original binge watching. Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. To me, it feels so immersive. The first thing I ever saw like that remains the best thing I've ever seen in the theater of my life, which was Nicholas Nickleby. Mm. And by the time you emerged from that show, you were like friends with everybody who had sat around you. It was, and it stays inside you for so because you've invested so much time in it. You've brought so much to it that totally. it, it just remains such a vivid part mm-hmm. of your heart mm-hmm. then for the rest of time. Well, that is a good way to describe how we feel about your work. Oh, because totally. It, is, it's the magic of theater. It's exactly what you say. You bring yourself to it. You know, you lean forward and you 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 live inside the songs. You right. Know? And 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 your songs across such a, a breath have have had that experience for us. You know, I, I you may or may not have heard my sort of fatuous quote when people say like how do you write a song and and my my little glib answer is tell the truth and make it rhyme. Yeah. Mm, I like <laughs> but I, I know I it's that. it's cute, right? I love but, it. But, but but it's also true. I yeah. mean the fact is that I learned with the song Metal Arc but but other songs as well that the more I got down into myself and, and my own truth and really revealed, well, Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm, you know, sure, she, yeah. she actually writes about her own life. Yeah. I don't have that courage. Yeah. I hide behind characters, but I'm always writing about myself right. and really, you know, and I feel like I'm naked in these, in these songs. And there've been a couple of songs where I thought, Oh, I could never play this for anyone because <laughs> everyone will know everything yeah, about me, yeah. but they don't. Yeah. They don't. They, they just, they think it's about them. Yes. I've had, like, I remember I wrote a very, very personal song. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. <laughs> but I played it in a cabaret one time, and Shirley MacLaine came <laughs> up to me and said, I felt when I heard this song like you had read my diary. <laughs> and that's the thing. We all, rev- rev- you know, Ben, you said before about the things that, that when you were talking about comforting yourself with music and how it speaks to your heart and you like gesture to a place yeah. in you yeah. in your chest <laughs> yeah. deep below where your brain is. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. the like thing about songs voice. and music. We all vibrate on some kind of similar human yeah. Yeah. um wavelength there. Mm-hmm. And and if you can reach that in yourself, it it does tend to be able to reach other people mm-hmm. in the yeah. same place. Mm-hmm. It's scary yeah. to do it. But ultimately, if you do it, if you can do it skillfully enough and you can communicate it enough, mm-hmm. it, it does tend to work, I've learned. Mm. Wow, that, that's, that's a very uh, concise description of the art of songwriting, or really of all writing, I guess. Maybe all art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's lovely. 
Um, well, we play okay. a really trashy game with our guests. Yeah. Oh, that you're probably okay. gonna right. well, um, I'm so bad at these things. <laughs> like, if you were a color, what color would you be? I hope you're not going to do one it's of not that. No, no. Um, I'm really well, bad at um, Have you heard of the game Fuck, Mary Kill? No, but I like the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, in Fuck, Mary Kill, uh, well, since you haven't heard of it, we can just go straight to our version, which is Dolly Concert Kill. Yes. So we're going to give you three performers. Uh-oh. Um, and I can already see this. <laughs> we, have to give, we probably have to give them dead people. Oh, I'm so bad um, at this. You choose one that you would like to see as Dolly Levi. And okay. Dolly. Uh-huh. One you'd like to see in a peak concert. career concert. Okay. And one that, unfortunately, <laughs> you will be given the axe. Oh, oh gosh, that's so scary. All right. Um, um, so, um, well, and, you... and, and, and am I serious about this? I would really like to see... Well, that's all right. I, you know what? No conditions. No conditions. Yeah. Go ahead. Go and ahead. You, can, you can... Got um, it. Got uh, it. So okay. I, well, I think we have to say Patty. Patty, Judy Collins, and, um, and uh, Judy Garland, or Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. Okay. Patty LuPone, Judy Collins, Whitney Houston. Okay, and and one I'm seeing Dolly like, Levi. Goes, well, well, that has to be Patty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, she she'd actually be wonderful. Very interesting. Yeah, yes. wonderful. Yes. Patty can really be funny. Yeah, uh, which people don't know. Yeah. She can be really funny. Yeah. Um, she doesn't always show that, uh-huh. but but she has a comic gift, um, which I think is helpful when you're playing Dolly Levi. Yes. So and she. God knows she'd sing it well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think there's no question about that. Wonderful. Um, I guess because of my own personal feelings Mm -hmm. about her and how influential, not just Wildflowers, but later work that she did, Mm -hmm. earlier work that she did. I mean, Judy Collins doing a career summation concert, I'm there. Absolutely. I'm so there. Well, this worked out great because Whitney so, Houston's already she's, dead. Right, so, she's gone. So you so, haven't done any harm. Yeah. This is wonderful. And I feel like, you know, Whitney and I had our, had our day, and so yes. um, we can I can treasure that one. And we forever. all can treasure that one, totally. along, along with the rest of the uh, Stephen Schwartz discography so far. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so thank much. This so was so much David. fun. We, yes, we love you so much. It was different than just talking about an album. Yeah, yeah, you know, we go <laughs> Sometimes places. We stay less I had more to say about that <laughs> album, but I'll just say... Well, like, we'll have to have you back. People, yeah. people just should go and download or Spotify or whatever they can. Absolutely. Flowers, if you've mm-hmm. never heard that mm-hmm. album, do yes. yourself a favor. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. This was so much fun. Love you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Ben Rimmelauer's Broken Records on Broadway World. For more episodes, visit Broadway World, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts do be. (laughs) Come back next week for Tony Award winner Santino Fontana coming in to chat about Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. Other upcoming guests include downtown goddess Bridget Everett, playwright-slash-songwriter Michael R. Jackson, and Broadway star Telly Leung. This episode was edited by me, Daniel Nolan. Special thanks to Emmy-winning composer and lyricist Lance Horn for the Broken Records theme song. Follow us both, Ben Rimmelauer and Daniel Nolan, on all y'all's socials. That's Ben Rimmelauer. B-E-N-R-I-M-A-L-O-W-E-R. And that's Nolan with an E, not Nolan with an A. Because Nolan with an A, isn't it? Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.